I need to say this morning that churches are not immune to conflict or controversy. Even the most biblical ones, the most sound ones, the most orthodox churches, sometimes it's in those churches that controversy rises because in those churches you have thinking Christians and thinking people. And that was the case in the church of Antioch. The church of Antioch had a rich heritage. In fact, Acts tells us that it was first in Antioch that the disciples of Jesus were first called Christians. That's where the name Christians was coined. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. I want you to take your Bibles again and be turning to the book of Romans as we uh, plot our way through this magnum opus of the Apostle Paul. And we find ourselves in Romans chapter 4, which many people would say is really the beginning portion of this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, the beginning portion of uh, what is considered to be the most important section of Romans altogether. This morning we want to look at verses 9 through 12 of Romans chapter 4, the title of the message, The Purpose of Circumcision. Please stand to your feet in honor of the reading of God's word, and I'll pick up in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised, Paul writes under inspiration. For we say that Paul was counted to, or we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. May God add his blessing to his holy word. Please be seated, and let's ask the Lord's help once more as we look at God's word together. Father, we are grateful for your word. We know your word is true. We can depend upon your word. So even when it comes to sections of scripture, Lord, that require us to go back in time to understand the context and to understand ancient customs, we know that this is for our spiritual good. So Lord, help our hearts be in tune. Help our minds be in tune. We know that you reach us through our minds. We have to be thinking Christians. So Lord, give us deep conviction regarding the sacraments this morning as we study this subject from Romans chapter 4. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It was many, many years ago when I was pastoring in my home state of West Virginia that I was preaching through the book of Colossians and one Sunday the topic of circumcision came up and I addressed the topic of circumcision at length. One of the members of that church was a young man who was actually my age. He had grown up in the church, and uh, he was a a somewhat well-known guy uh, in the state of West Virginia. He actually had uh, a few votes to be the governor of West Virginia, which was more or less a joke, but he did receive some votes to be the governor of West Virginia. He had a wonderful uh, sense of humor, and at the time, he actually was a stand-up comedian um, in nearby Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, after I preached my sermon on circumcision... A number of us had lunch with several church people when Josh made the announcement, ladies and gentlemen, let's congratulate Pastor Andrew Smith because he has said the word circumcision in one sermon more times than anyone in the history of the world. Well, that is true, but my intent in speaking about circumcision is not to make anybody feel uncomfortable. You need to understand that we are Bible-believing Christians. We believe in the expository preaching of God's Word, and I don't have the luxury this morning and some sort of cover of dignity, false dignity, to not speak directly on these sorts of subjects, and the subject of circumcision is the subject this morning. We can't skip verses ever for any reason. 
I'll also tell you that circumcision was a huge deal in the first century because many Jewish Christians wrongly emphasized circumcision as a required rite of passage, even for Gentiles to be considered truly Christian. And so that's why Paul addresses this subject. If you remember the last time we met uh, and studied Romans, beginning in chapter 4, Paul began to make several different arguments about the grace of the gospel, and he does that by pointing to Abraham as our example. He's really arguing three separate things that are related. Number one, that Abraham was not justified or made right with God through works. We saw that in verses 1 through 8. This morning, we're going to look at the fact that Abraham was not justified or made right with God through circumcision. We see that in verses 9 through 12. And then Paul also argues that Abraham was not justified or made right with God by the law. Now, we're just going to look at verses 9 through 12. I want to hold to my promise that I made at the beginning of this series, and that is, at times, we will look at fewer verses together in order to grasp the significance of what Paul is speaking about. And what he says in verses 9 through 12 is very important because he essentially is setting forth God's purpose of circumcision beginning with Abraham. We don't know, actually, when circumcision began. We uh, know that the Egyptians, for example, also practiced circumcision. We don't know the original significance of circumcision among the various groups in the world that practiced it. It was just a few groups. It was not just the Jews, though. They could have uh, practiced it um, in order to prevent infection. That's an argument that a lot of people make. Other people make the argument that it was intended to facilitate intimate relations between husband and wife. Uh, there are others who say that people practice it as an initiation right into manhood. And, there, and then there are even other groups that perhaps practiced it to protect against um, the influence of demons. And I don't quite understand that argument, but that was sort of the argument some people made as to why they circumcised their little boys. But ultimately, you need to understand that there was a spiritual purpose behind God's institution of circumcision. And I need to say this at the very beginning. Quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So the physical rite of circumcision had a spiritual meaning behind it. This was not merely medical. It, it was not merely sexual. It had a deeply spiritual meaning behind it. In fact, the cutting away of that foreskin was meant to represent the fact that God had cut out of the world a people to himself, to be in covenant with them. And if you violated the covenant, God threatened to cut you off out of that group of people, placing you back into the world. So this was a tremendously significant issue. And if Paul can demonstrate that circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham's being made right with God or justified, and that he was justified by faith alone, which is his argument throughout Romans 4, then he could prove that nobody else could be justified by any other sort of religious rite, whether it's circumcision or baptism or the Lord's Supper or the Passover or any other sort of man-made tradition that's not found in Scripture. The mere act of a religious rite does not infuse into the person that is under that right a level of grace that then makes them right with God. The circumcision is a sign and a seal of God's covenant. Paul is clear about that in this passage. And if you're wondering how this applies to you today, I'm going to help you with that because baptism has replaced circumcision. Baptism is the new covenant sign of of the people of God, to point to God's covenant of grace. And we're going to see that as we work through these verses. Now, there are just four points this morning, and there are just four verses. What Paul does is he gives to us four purposes of circumcision, and we're going to apply it after we look at it to the issue of baptism. So let's look at these in their turn. The first purpose of circumcision is what I want to call a universal purpose, we see this in verse 9. Paul says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Paul states that the first purpose of circumcision is uh, that it takes place in universal terms. That the place and purpose of circumcision in God's world, 
specifically to Abraham and his physical descendants, was never meant to justify or make a sinner have a right standing with God. And he makes his point by asking a question. Notice it again in verse 9. He says, is this blessing, and the blessing is the one referred back to in the previous verses, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? What was the blessing? Well, the blessing was the blessing that David declared in Psalm 32 that Paul quoted. Notice verse Six, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Verse seven, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So the blessing is the blessing of forgiveness. And though David was clear that God counts one righteous apart from works, verse six, there were many Jews in Paul's day who believed that you achieved righteousness partially, not only by having faith, but also by being circumcised, that the religious right was necessary for salvation. And so Paul is now asking the question in verse 9, is circumcision really necessary to be justified by God? That's what they argued. Is this really the case? Is this blessing of forgiveness only for the circumcised, or is it also for the uncircumcised? Now, the purposes that man attaches to rituals that God ordains are not valid purposes. And his point in verse 9 is that there is a universal purpose for circumcision. He's going to get to that eventually. But he's basically saying in verse 9 that this universal purpose, listen to this, does not include it as a means to achieve salvation blessing or forgiveness. And Paul affirms this when he says there in verse 9, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. He's quoting again Genesis 15, 6, which he quoted earlier in Romans 4. And his question here in verse 9 has even more significance. And the quotation of Genesis 15 has more significance than even earlier because earlier he quoted it before he quoted David about the blessing of forgiveness. But because he quotes Genesis 15, 6 again, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, he's doubling down to say whether you're talking about good works and obedience or whether you're talking about a religious right, it doesn't matter. Faith alone was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now, you understand that and you accept that with no issue. But what he says radically goes against the teaching not only of the Jews, of his day, but some Jewish Christians of his day. In fact, in arguing that faith alone was the instrument leading to Abraham's justification or being declared righteous, as he says in verse 9, the fact that he mentions that, notice he says, for we say, for we say. He says that because there was a division that existed in the church in Paul's day. Paul says, We say that faith alone is required for salvation, not a religious right like circumcision. That means there was another group who was saying circumcision had a universal purpose behind it that was not according to Scripture. And who do you suppose the we refers to? Well, the we we refers to the Apostle Paul and all the true apostles, and in particular, those true apostles in the Jerusalem council in which Paul participated in. I need to say this morning that churches are not immune to conflict or controversy. Even the most biblical ones, the most sound ones, the most orthodox churches, sometimes it's in those churches that controversy rises because in those churches you have thinking Christians and thinking people. And that was the case in the church of Antioch. The church of Antioch had a rich heritage. In fact, Acts tells us that it was first in Antioch, that the disciples of Jesus were first called Christians. That's where the name Christians was coined. Not only that, but the Apostle Paul was a teacher in the church at Antioch, and they loved him so much, they commissioned him to missionary journeys to Cyprus and Asia Minor and also Greece. It was in this church in the early second century that Ignatius, the church father, arose. Ignatius was the bishop of Antioch. He was a man martyred for his faith, for standing up for his faith. It was in Antioch in the fourth century that John Chrysostom, the golden mouth preacher, attacked the allegorical method of interpretation which was common in Egypt. It was the common way to interpret the Bible. And Chrysostom said, no, we need to interpret the Bible literally. This church had a rich tradition, and even the chalice of Antioch that was discovered in 1916, this was a plain silver cup 
set in an ornamental holder bearing figures believed to represent Jesus and the apostles, they believed at, at that point could have dated back to the first century and could have been the real cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper. It's referred to as the Holy Grail. Now, archaeologists have now discovered and affirmed the fact that that chalice only dates back to the 4th and 5th centuries AD. So it wasn't the original chalice. But that chalice was found in Antioch. So this church had a rich history. It was in the church of Antioch that people began seriously questioning the insistence by some professing Christians who lived over in Judea, the province of Judea, that circumcision was necessary to be a Christian, that circumcision was necessary to have church fellowship with other Christians. And there were obviously people concerned about this issue because it was an obvious carryover from the Jewish belief that circumcision made one right with God. And so these Jewish Christians in Judea that converted to Christianity said, yes, Jesus is the promised Messiah, but circumcision is still required to be made right with God. And so these Christians in Antioch, under the leadership of Paul and Barnabas, helped plan a council of joint elders and apostles between the two churches in Jerusalem and Antioch to settle whether circumcision was necessary to be a Christian and to be a member of the church. In fact, we read about it in Acts 15, and I don't want you to take my word for it. Turn back to Acts chapter 15, because we read in verses 1 and 2 that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, that's a problem. Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, in other words, this was a huge controversy, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And of course, you know the story. I'm not going to go into it in detail, but there was a unanimous decision at the Jerusalem Council that was circulated by way of letter sent to all the churches declaring that obedience to any Mosaic ritual, including but not limited to circumcision, was emphatically not necessary for salvation. And you can read about that in Acts 15 later. But these Judaizers, these false teachers... Even after the Jerusalem council met and settled the issue, they continued to be a thorn in Paul's side and therefore a threat to the gospel. Now understand, Paul was not against circumcision per se because God had ordained it. But what he was against was the false teacher's association of circumcision with salvation as a religious rite that you had to take upon your body. And many of the early believers likely, if they were Jews, not only had their baby boys circumcised in the new covenant early in the life of the infancy of the church but they also had their babies baptized but they never viewed this as meritorious for salvation but the judaizers did and you say well what about timothy Paul had Timothy circumcised. Well, that was a special occasion. Timothy was half Gentile and he wasn't circumcised as a baby boy. And so Paul had Timothy circumcised as a man for one reason. That was to give him greater access to the Jews in his hometown so he could be a witness to them so that his lack of circumcision would not be a stumbling block. But Paul saw the Judaizers as such a threat to the true gospel that he actually called those circumcised teachers names. That's right, Paul called them names. He said in Philippians 3, Beware of the dogs, the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He called these false teachers names. And he actually said that their understanding of circumcision was meaningless. He said in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. That, that is the issue. God's love for the sinner sovereignly and the instrument of faith that that sinner demonstrates in Christ is what brings about salvation, not circumcision. And he even mockingly told the Judaizers what they could do to themselves. In Galatians 5, he says, I wish those who unsettle you, speaking about the Judaizers, I wish they would emasculate themselves. Now there was a dominant religion um, on the borders of Phrygia, which is where Galatia bordered that was dominated by these pagan priests who in an effort to show their religious devotion to their gods literally castrated themselves and so when Paul says I wish those Judaizers who unsettle you would just um, 
emasculate themselves. He's saying they just need to castrate themselves. If you believe so much in the value of circumcision, why cut just a little piece of skin off? Cut the whole thing off. Emasculate yourself. Show your true devotion. It's sarcasm, isn't it? Sometimes sarcasm is necessary, particularly with false teachers. So Paul viewed this as a huge issue. Now let me say this. Many today have a wrong view of baptism like many in Paul's day had a wrong view of circumcision because many people believe that baptism has saving qualities to it. That is not true. Any ritual, any sacrament established by God has a universal purpose that God alone has the right to define. We cannot add our own notions of what we want to baptism or what we want to the Lord's Supper. It's no different for us today. It's different ceremonies and rituals of the new covenant that God has prescribed. But lest we ever, ever, ever think that by baptizing an infant, we're infusing grace in them, we need to pay very special attention to this passage. Because the Judaizers believed that very thing with respect to circumcision. That it did something to that child to make them right with God. We emphatically reject that. And let me also say, not everyone who believes in infant baptism believes that baptism saves that baby. Those that believe that are Roman Catholic. Those that believe that are some Lutherans and Episcopalians. That is not what Reformed people believe. Calvin was clear, very clear in his Institutes of the Christian Religion and in his commentaries and in his letters that circumcision was a sign in the Old Covenant and baptism is a sign in the New Covenant. Neither one of them automatically saved anybody. And we'll talk about that more as we work through this passage. But I think verse 9 sort of lays that universal purpose down. But this then takes us to the second purpose of circumcision. It not only had a universal purpose, but number two, it had a chronological purpose. Notice in verse 10, Paul says, How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Paul says it was not after, but before he was circumcised. Now in verse 9, Paul made clear by implication that the universal purpose of circumcision was that God never intended it to be a saving right. It did not make one right with God. Faith alone and the promised one made makes one right with God. Just as Jesus said in John chapter 8, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and when he saw it, he was glad. Now in verse 10, Paul makes this truth a little clearer by giving a second purpose of circumcision. And here's where we need to pay very careful attention to the context. What he tells us is that for Abraham and for all first-generation believers of the Old Covenant, circumcision came after a demonstration of faith. So the case that Paul presents in verse 10 is one of timing. It's one of historical chronology. So he asks a rather pointed question. Notice it again in verse 10. He says, how then was it counted to him? That is, the righteousness imputed to Abraham. How did God count it to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? This is akin to asking, in effect, did Abraham's circumcision have any role in him being declared righteous? Well, what's the answer? Well, Paul answers it in verse 10. He says, it was not after circumcision that Abraham was declared righteous, but before he was circumcised. Abraham did not, Paul says, submit to circumcision first and thus have something to brag about in terms of achieving righteousness as many of the rabbis did. No, in the order of events, the chronology, Abraham's justification came before he ever submitted to circumcision and before he ever even knew it was in the cards that he would be circumcised. Genesis 15 through 17 is the evidence of that. Genesis 15 is where we read about Abraham's justification. God counted his faith as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6, which Paul quotes in this passage. Genesis 15 took place 14 years before Genesis 17. And Genesis 17 is when Abraham was actually circumcised. So Paul's saying there's no way that the ground of Abraham's justification had anything to do with circumcision based purely on the chronology. Forget, forget for a moment about the theology of grace. Forget about theology. Let's just talk about the chronology, Paul says. Abraham's circumcision was not the condition of his justification. His faith was his faith in God's promise. And in fact, if you dig a little bit further in the chronology, you, get, you can get even more specific. For example, when Abraham was declared righteous by God, Genesis 15, he was 85 years old. 
Don't tell me that old people can't come to know Christ as their Savior. He was 85. And at this point, Ishmael wasn't conceived, much less born. And when Abraham was finally circumcised, Ishmael was 13 years old, and he was circumcised, and Abraham at that point was 99. So the sign of God's covenant with Abraham, circumcision, was just that. It was a sign. It wasn't the ground of the covenant. The ground of the covenant began and ended with God's grace. When Abraham believed God and his promise, God counted it to him or imputed to him his own righteousness. So Paul's argument proves that Abraham's circumcision had nothing to do with his justification purely by doing the math. And showing the facts of the chronology. Abraham was justified in Genesis 15. He wasn't circumcised until Genesis 17. There was a 14-year interval. Incidentally, the rabbi's math was wrong. The rabbis said there was a 29-year interval between Abraham's faith and then his circumcision. So even if someone might argue like a rabbi against Paul to use the rabbi's math, not only was the math wrong, but there were more years. There was a a longer interval, 29 years, not the 14 that Paul says. So facts don't have feelings. They have a way of revealing the truth. Paul's not even talking about theology at this point. He's just talking about chronology. And the point of his chronological argument in verse 10 teaches us, listen carefully, the timing of circumcision in one sense wasn't the most important thing. And I would say the timing of baptism is also not the most important thing. The timing of baptism is important on the other hand, and the timing of circumcision is important on the other hand if you're talking about first-generation believers. Abraham was a first-generation believer, so it only makes sense that the sign would be applied after. There are first-generation believers in the New Covenant. Think about all the people in the book of Acts, most of whom were adults who, like Abraham, believed in the promised seed of Jesus before the sign of baptism was applied. So the timing of their baptism, like Abraham with circumcision, came after they believed. But you need to ask the question, when else could the sign take place? I mean, Abraham didn't even know who God was. It wasn't until he believed that then the sign was applied. But we do have in the book of Acts at least the suggestion on a number of different occasions that the infants and children of believing adults within the household, were baptized. And you say, well, what's the precedent for that? Listen closely. Ishmael, of Abraham's household, was baptized at 13 years old. But that's when the first generation believer, Abraham, was also baptized. There's no evidence that Ishmael was a believer, but he was part of the household, and so the sign was applied to him. When Isaac was born, he was circumcised on the eighth day. Well, that's just like covenant children today in the new covenant. There are Isaacs who are born into a believing family and immediately baptized. And there are times when adults don't become believers till later in life, and then their children are baptized. When, say, they're teenagers, the sign is applied later. So depending on the recipients of baptism determines the timing of baptism. Just like in the Old Covenant, uh, the recipients of circumcision depended upon The timing depended upon who they were. Is it Ishmael or is it Isaac? Is it a first-generation believer like Abraham? Or is it Isaac and Jacob and all of their sons after who had the right of circumcision applied? There is far more continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament than sometimes we like to think. The Old Testament and the New Testament are all equally inspired and equally God's word. And this naturally progresses us to Paul's next purpose of circumcision. It not only had a universal purpose, it not only had a chronological purpose, but it also had a covenantal purpose. And this is where we get into the theology. Notice verse 11. Paul says, He, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Now, I hope you see the natural progression in Paul's argument. He began with the universal purpose of circumcision, showing that God never intended at any time, universally speaking, whether Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, to ever view a sign of the covenant as a magical rite infusing righteousness into the recipient. 
I read from Genesis 17 earlier that Abraham was not only required to circumcise all his male sons, he was also required to circumcise his slaves. And there's nothing that suggests that those slaves believed that by being circumcised, they were right with God. But what they did understand is that they were in covenant with God as they were under the authority of Abraham, who was their master. And so the universal purpose is that no one really ever believed, at least at the beginning, that circumcision as a religious rite had anything to do with salvation. It had something to do with the covenant. The chronological purpose, as we just saw, shows that the history of the sign of God's covenant of grace was applied to believing adults after, not before their faith was demonstrated, and then the righteousness of Christ was imputed to them. But I need to say this, that even in the case of children of believers who received the sign before believing, there was still the requirement that they give evidence of true faith because the sign itself simply pointed to the promises of God. A perfect example of this is Romans 9, Jacob and Esau. Both of those boys were circumcised and only one was elect. Only one was a true believer. So circumcision doesn't automatically save and neither does baptism. And this is really what Paul's arguing now in verse 11. That circumcision, and we can go ahead and say by application, baptism is a sign and a seal of God's covenant. First of all, it's a sign. Notice the beginning of verse 11, he received, notice, the sign of circumcision. This means that though circumcision does not, cannot, and was never intended to save, doesn't mean it's unimportant. In fact, it's so important that it's called the sign of the covenant. It is the physical thing you look at to be reminded of the promises of God. And I love John Murray here. He says, and I quote, Paul did not make the capital mistake of thinking that because circumcision had no efficacy in creating faith, that it therefore had no religious significance or value. It is valuable, but it's valuable in terms of the way God intended for that religious rite to be used. My family participates in a traveling ritual of sorts when we make our annual trip, sometimes a couple times a year back to West Virginia. When you're coming close to the state line of West Virginia, you pass through the East Mountain River Tunnel. This is um, a tunnel that's over 5,000 feet long, goes straight through a mountain. When you come out the other side, you're entering into the state of West Virginia. So it connects Virginia to West Virginia on Interstate um, 77. Um, It's one of only two tunnels in the entire United States that connects two states. I can tell you without exposing the secret ritual that we conduct ourselves in, in the van as we're traveling through that tunnel, I can guarantee you that West Virginia music is being played and the children are getting excited and dad is getting excited and before he realizes it, he's going about 75, 80 miles an hour through that tunnel because we want to get to that state sign because that state sign points beyond itself to the thing that we love, which is our home state of West Virginia. But that sign is not the state of West Virginia. The sign itself is not the state. The sign points in the direction in which our state is located. The sign points beyond itself. And in the same way, the sign of circumcision points beyond itself to the covenant promises of God made with Abraham and with God's people. And So is baptism. Neither sign, circumcision or baptism, confers salvation, but both signs point to the righteousness that God grants when faith is present. So think about this a little bit deeper. As a sign, circumcision was the cutting away of foreskin, which suggests the cutting away of the guilt and pollution of sin. This is why Deuteronomy 10.16 says circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Circumcision was a picture of justification. The skin was a sign of sin. The removal of physical flesh pictured the removal of sinful flesh, corruption, depravity. The sign was a picture of God's salvation. The skin cut away was a picture of sin being cut away. And the same is true with respect to the new covenant sign of baptism. The New Testament describes it as something that washes away our sin. Not in a literal way, in a symbolic way, in a metaphorical way, in a picture way. Only God justifies. So Abraham was not a clean-cut 
circumcised Jew when God justified him. In fact, he looked more like a Gentile. He was uncircumcised. He was a pagan. His father was a pagan. And it was in that state that God justified him before he was circumcised. He believed the declaration and the blessing of forgiveness that David says in Psalm 32. He believed and God forgave him and justified him. So his circumcision had nothing to do with his justification and being declared righteous. The circumcision just pointed as a sign to what God was going to do. And in fact, listen carefully, the sign of circumcision wasn't even pointing in the most technical and biblical sense to Abraham's individual faith. It was pointing to God's faithfulness. Because Abraham couldn't take credit for his faith. That required God to be faithful, to come true with his promises, and to give Abraham the necessary faith. So as a sign, circumcision not only suggests the cutting away of sin, and therefore it pictures justification, but it also points to the promised one that would come. I mean, read Genesis 15, read Genesis 17. It's all about a family history. It's all about a heritage. It's all about a father and his sons. Well, how do you have sons? You can only have sons most of the time if you're married and your wife gets pregnant. Well, the seed that was promised to Abraham ultimately was the seed of Christ. We read about that. So in circumcising those baby boys, it was pointing forward to Christ. In fact, um, in the book of Galatians, Paul speaks rather candidly. He says, uh, for example, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, listen to this, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham was the blessing of the promised one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so circumcision is a sign, but it's not an empty sign because God would follow through with his promise. He would justify the one who had faith in the promised one in the old covenant. And in the new covenant, he does the same thing. There's a different sign. It's baptism. It symbolizes the washing away of sin, whereas circumcision symbolized the cutting away of sin. But essentially, it was symbolizing the same thing. But the sign changes now that Christ has come. There's no longer a need for a symbol to be associated with one's loins because Christ is here. He's right in front of us. He's been resurrected. He has ascended. He is here. But now we have the sign of baptism. So circumcision is a sign. Baptism is a sign. But circumcision is also a seal. Notice in verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision. But notice what else Paul says. As a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So the concept of a seal and a sign are similar, except for the fact that They're different because a seal goes beyond what a sign does. A sign points to something promised when dealing with God's covenants, but a seal guarantees that promise. In fact, there in verse 11, if you circle that word seal, it is a New Testament word that has behind it the the idea of a king's signet ring. When a king had an important document that had a decree that he was making, wax was placed on that document and he took his signet ring and he pressed that ring on the wax to leave his personal authenticated imprint and that's the image you need to think of God the king uses the sacraments of circumcision in the old testament baptism in the new testament as a means to imprint his promises on the individuals of the covenant to in a sense burn it in our memories every time we see the sacraments performed in circumcision the promise was to forgive and remove sin and in, in, in baptism it's to forgive and wash away sin let me quote rc sproul he says god has put his indelible mark on us in the sacraments god guarantees the consequences of justification to all who believe not to all who receive the sign so the sign is only effective to the one who has faith So when God leaves his mark on us, circumcision in the Old Testament, 
Baptism in the New Testament. What he is saying is that this person belongs to the covenant. But this person, if they don't have true faith, does not ultimately, in the final sense, belong to me. And that was true in the Old Covenant as well. Because the sign itself doesn't save. But it does seal the promises of God. There's something else here to highlight in the language of verse 11. It's called a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. The righteousness refers to God's righteousness. In Philippians 3, 9, it's called the righteousness of of God. Paul is trying to express in, in no uncertain terms a theology of the sacraments and more importantly a unity and a beauty of the one covenant of grace. Righteousness is only ever received through faith, Paul is saying. But that doesn't mean that circumcision was unimportant and it doesn't mean that baptism is unimportant today. In fact, notice the rest of verse 11. He says, the purpose was to make him, that is Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So the purpose is for God to mark out his people within his covenant and for those parents, those fathers, those mothers to train their children to believe in the promises of God, to believe in the seal that was placed on them that has no saving efficacy unless they believe in Christ. It's faith alone. And it's interesting in verse 11, Abraham is not just the father of ethnic Jews. We often think that. But Paul says he is the father, notice it, of all who believe without being circumcised. That means he's the father of Gentiles as well. And I quite like this. Abraham is the father of Gentiles. Circumcision was no more necessary for Abraham's justification than it is for us Gentiles today. So Jews can claim all they want about the salvific value of circumcision. But the reality is that Abraham was a Gentile when he believed. Just like when we believed, we, we are Gentiles. In a superficial sense, Abraham became the great divider of all humanity because he separated Jews from Gentiles. But in another sense, he became the great unifier because what Paul's saying in verse 11 is that one's ethnicity is not as important as one's theology. And you and I are sons and daughters of Abraham because of our faith, Galatians 3, 7. Now, every single commentator that I came across speaks about baptism in their comments on these verses, because you can't escape it. The sign of circumcision or the sign of baptism is not the cause of righteousness. It only confirms righteousness when a person has faith. It's a sign and a seal. And I think Calvin's comments are the best. He says this, and I quote, we have indeed here a remarkable passage with regard to the general benefits of sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. He says, according to the testimony of Paul, these sacraments are seals by which the promises of God are imprinted on our hearts. And though by themselves they profit nothing, yet God has designed them to be the instruments of his grace. And he effects by the secret grace of his spirit that they should not be without benefit in the elect. So a non-elect person can receive the sign and it has no benefit, Calvin says. And though they are dead and unprofitable symbols to the reprobate, that is the non-elect, they yet retain their import and character for though our unbelief may deprive them of their effect, yet it cannot weaken or extinguish the truth of God. Hence it remains a fixed principle that sacred symbols like Lord's Supper and Baptism are testimonies by which God seals his grace on our hearts. And while we're speaking about Lord's Supper, we need to also speak about the Passover because Lord's Supper replaced the Passover just as baptism replaced circumcision. So think about this with me for a moment. In the old covenant, you had circumcision and the Passover, but in the new covenant, you have baptism and the Lord's Supper. What is the same? Well, the covenant of grace remains intact. God still saves the same way. He doesn't save through a sign. The sign just points to his salvation, which is only received by grace. Faith is still only the means of salvation or the instrumentation. And not only that, the recipients and both covenants include infants. Isaac was included, eight days old, circumcised. Teenagers, Ishmael was circumcised when he was 13. And first generation believing adults. Abraham was circumcised after his faith. Ishmael was circumcised after his faith as a 13-year-old, we could say. Isaac didn't have the ability to demonstrate faith, but he was circumcised as an infant. Now, I need to say this. My position 
has changed on baptism, and you know that very well. And it's because I think that Baptists, although they mean well, I don't think they possess the most consistent theology of the sacraments. We want to be consistent theologians of God's word. Baptists insist that the sacrament of baptism and Lord's Supper are only for believing adults. But where I think the flaw is, is that they don't see the continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. And I can sort of give this to you by way of analogy. Could you imagine what would happen if a father of an Israelite home on the night of the Passover, where God commanded everyone in the household to partake of that, if he said, you know what, I've been thinking family, I'm the only one here who clearly has faith. You children don't understand what we're getting ready to do, so you better not partake of the Passover meal. How do you think God would respond to that? Would he respond positively? Or could you imagine Abraham disobeying God and saying, well, God, I know you told me to circumcise Isaac at eight days old, but you told me to circumcise Ishmael when he was 13, so I think I'm just going to wait till he's 13. That way he'll understand things. Listen, Jesus said you must become like a young child to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I am grateful that my parents, when I began to show signs of faith and repentance as a four-year-old, I'm grateful my parents didn't brush me off and say, you really don't understand the gospel. Wait until you're a little bit older. Wait until you sow your wild oats and we can see if your faith is really yours. They didn't do that. They encouraged my faith. We need to encourage our children to love the Lord from a young age. Because listen, it's not up to you to determine when your child believes. It's your job to believe in Christ and to point your children, even at a young age, that they too must trust the promises of God, not their baptism, not their church membership, not the faith of mommy and daddy. Their faith has to be their own faith. But why discourage them by saying, well, you don't understand repentance or you don't understand the gospel or you don't understand the deity of Christ or you don't understand the Trinity? Really? Jesus picked babies up in his arms and blessed them. When the disciples turned them away and said, these children have nothing to do with God's kingdom. Jesus certainly did not think that and he rebuked the disciples for thinking that way. The only reason that Abraham received the sign after faith was to highlight that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. God could have had Abraham's dad circumcising, but he didn't because God wanted to make the point. Circumcision is important, baptism is important, but it doesn't replace faith. It's faith alone that saves. And so when we look back at Abraham, we say, wow, it's faith alone that saves. And that's why Baptists and Presbyterians can be joined together in the same church because none of us believe that baptism, whenever it is applied, ever has anything to do with salvation. And Abraham is our example. That's the covenantal purpose of the sacraments and of circumcision in particular because that's really what we're talking about. So Paul gives four purposes of circumcision, a universal purpose in verse 9, a chronological purpose in verse 10, a covenantal purpose in verse 11, but in verse 12, tucked away, I think, is a sacramental purpose. He's continuing his thoughts from verse 11 and the practical truth that, that um, Abraham is the father of all those who believe. And notice what he says In verse 12, he says, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. But Abraham also had faith after he was circumcised, right? His whole life was a walk of faith. This is true of all genuine believers. I think the question we need to ask when we read that phrase in verse 12 those who walk in the footsteps of the faith, we need to ask the question, what fortifies or strengthens our faith? Well, don't take my word for it. Listen to the Heidelberg Catechism. Question. Since then, we are made partakers of Christ and all his benefits by faith only. That's what we've been studying. Where does this faith come from? Answer. The Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms that is, strengthens or fortifies it for the elect by the use of the holy sacraments. What are the sacraments? Well, answer, the sacraments are visible, 
holy signs and seals appointed by God for this end, that by their use he may more the fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel, namely that of free grace he grants us the forgiveness of sins and everlasting light for the sake of the one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. This speaks of the strengthening of one's faith when they participate in the sacraments. So in that phrase in verse 12, that Abraham is the father of those who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father had before he that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised, we need to understand that the faith he had before was the same faith he had after. And the example of that is Genesis chapter 22. When God asked Abraham in faith to offer on the altar his only son from Sarah, his only heir, the promised one, the one he had been waiting for, and God said, sacrifice him, kill him, shed his blood, Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Because the faith of Abraham, the continual faith of Abraham is pointed out here. Notice verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he would receive him back. Wow. He considered that God was able? What does that mean? It means that Abraham still had faith at this point, however old Isaac might have been. So back in Romans 4, that phrase, walk in the footsteps, it has the idea of of marching in a single file line. This is not walking shoulder to shoulder in columns of three or four. This is walking in the footsteps of Abraham, behind Abraham. True Christians are strengthened and fortified in the walk of faith by the Holy Spirit. Here is the point, through the sacraments. The sacraments are vital for your sanctification. They are not incidental. They are not some just religious ritual that we do. We try to do them as often as we can because they point forward and backward to the gospel. We are to follow in the footsteps or the footprints left by Abraham, the man of faith. He proved that his faith was real because he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Of course, God stopped him. But listen to this. Someone will say, James says, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You say, what in the world? The half-brother of our Lord is now saying that we're justified by works as well as faith? Well, I thought Paul's whole point in Romans 4 was that we're only justified by faith. Well, the answer is Paul is writing for a different reason. He's emphasizing that we can only be justified by our faith because there were people believing that circumcision and other works of the law had something to do with meriting salvation. But when James, the half-brother of our Lord, wrote to those Christians, he's writing about something different. He's writing to Christians who apparently made a profession of faith, but there was no evidence whatsoever that they were people of faith because they were not walking in faith. They were not walking in obedience. They were not like Abraham who walked in faith continually, even being willing to sacrifice his only son. So Paul points us back to Genesis 15 and Abraham's justification by faith alone. James points us to Genesis 22 and the offering up of Isaac to say, yes, of course Abraham was justified by faith alone, but his faith didn't come alone. It was a faith that worked. In other words, The value of the sacraments, Lord's Supper and baptism, is that it strengthens and fortifies our faith. It helps us understand that our trust is only in the gospel. And I like to imagine, although I cannot prove it, 
that when Abraham laid his boy Isaac on that altar, that he could not help but think of two things. Number one, the pain that this was going to cause his son in killing him. And number two, the pain that was inflicted on him when he was circumcised. And at that moment, he would have remembered the promises of God. And that is what strengthened his faith to be willing to go through that. It was that sacrament of circumcision. This boy came from my loins and God had me cut away a piece of my skin to constantly remind me that we are the people of God and that we are to trust in the promises of God. And so I think that the sacraments strengthen and fortify our faith to copy what the Heidelberg Catechism says. They don't save us, but they strengthen our faith. They help us walk in the footsteps of Abraham, living a life full of faith and obedience. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves never comes alone. It's a faith that works. You see the continuity of Scripture? There's no contradiction here. It all can be very simply explained and understood when you put all of the passages of Scripture together. Incidentally, I was listening to or watching a sermon last week that my my uncle is a pastor in West Virginia, and he was preaching uh, a beginning sermon on the book of James. And he pointed out the fact that um, it's obvious that the apostle Paul did not disagree with James. I mean, it's not like Paul said, we're justified by faith alone, and James says, no, we're justified by faith in works. And he said, here is why. Do you understand who the moderator of the Jerusalem council was? It was James. It was the half-brother of our Lord. He was on Paul's side. It was his speech or sermon that said, no, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. We're only saved by faith alone. Do you think that same James became unorthodox later in life when he wrote the inspired book of James? You would have to be a non-Christian or at least someone who doesn't believe in the authority of the Bible to think that James is ever going to contradict the apostle Paul when they sat on the same most important council in the history of the church that said salvation is only by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. So there's obviously no contradiction in Scripture or between James or Paul. It is amazing to think, isn't it, that we Gentiles, the new covenant people of God, have these wonderful sacraments of the baptism and the Lord's Supper to fortify and strengthen our faith so that we can walk in the footsteps of Abraham. We have the character of Abraham because we have the faith of Abraham. That's why we can call ourselves sons of Abraham when we're not even physically Jews. It's the same thing that the Bible says in Genesis chapter 4 when it says that uh, Jabel was the father of all of those who dwell in tents. It wasn't just Jabel's physical sons that dwelt in tents. It's any person who is a sojourner who dwells in tents, that's a son of Jabel, whether physical or not. And in the same way, whether physical or not, if we're believers in Christ and we believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then we're just like Abraham. We're a son of Abraham. None of us were circumcised before being declared righteous. Well, I guess that's not true. Most of us were if we're men. But we weren't circumcised in a church. It wasn't a religious ritual. And neither was Abraham. He was saved by faith alone, and we are too. One other thing I should say before I close. As your pastor, I want you to understand that my love for you is not based upon your understanding of baptism. So long as you agree with me, And all Orthodox Reformed people that baptism doesn't save. To me, it's not important if you don't believe in infant baptism. That is not the most important issue. If you believe, as I do, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ. In fact, I would say this, I actually thank you. Because you can warn all of us who do believe in infant baptism to not be like the Judaizers to not ever be tempted to trust and some water being sprinkled on a baby is having some magical effect of bringing that child in a right condition before God. That water doesn't wash away original sin. There's nothing special about that water. As a matter of fact, it's taken from the sink in the back. We don't go to St. Augustine, to the fountain of youth. It's normal water. But we believe that that doesn't make it insignificant because when that sign is applied to infants, babies, or believing adults, it doesn't matter. It reminds all of us that God has put his imprint on us. 
We are his people. And when we gather in this place, we are his. We belong to him. And he belongs to us. And if we continue to believe in the promises of God, which can only happen if the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, let's be honest, then we can have assurance of our salvation. And our faith can be strengthened. And so I quite like the fact that some of you don't believe in infant baptism. Because I think it balances the tendency of some to believe that infant baptism is actually saving. And it's not. On the other hand, I also think that some Baptists tend to place too much of an importance on baptism and the timing of it, and I think you can go in that same direction where you begin to place more of an importance on the sign instead of the thing itself, which are the promises of God. I've never kissed the welcome to West Virginia state sign. That sign means nothing to me, but I have kissed the ground of West Virginia because that's my home and that's my heritage. I hope that's not too much of a crude illustration to say that the sign of circumcision, the sign of baptism are simply signs. They're valuable, they're important, they fortify our faith, but they don't save us. They point beyond themselves to Christ. He is the one we want to kiss. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. Let us look to Christ, not a religious rite. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.